Today I want to reflect on the words of Psalm 33 in light of the world we're living in right now, particularly as many of the seams of our world, our civilization even you might say, are being pulled on pretty hard. I think we could say that many of them are fraying in some ways. We all feel that. And the shadow, even of a war that's being waged some 6,000 miles away, has fallen over all of us because the world we live in is smaller, decidedly. It's more interdependent economically and um, politically and socially. So we feel it. And meanwhile, the pandemic um, simultaneously exposed and it agitated the human struggle to be wise and to be humane and to be measured and to just be plain practical and to work together. And I'd imagine all of us, when we can't avoid thinking about all this, are trying to make sense of it all at some level. At least I am. And I think this is why passages like Psalm 33 are so crucial for followers of Christ. This is why the Psalms are still our prayer book as they were for Israel. And this psalm is situated, as all psalms are, in the larger story of God's love for the troubled world that he's redeeming the world as it really is. It doesn't paper over anything, and it certainly doesn't reduce the reality of suffering and the reality of need in the world. And it's written and sung in the face of real vulnerability. That's why the Psalms remain so relevant for us. Psalms like this can help us actually resituate ourselves regardless of what's going on. They can, and they're meant to. They can help us think rightly about this common struggle to hope in and this common struggle to contend for what's true and what's trustworthy on where we can depend for what matters, for what will last when all else falls away. We can depend on the message of these psalms, which is the message of the gospel for the why of our lives. Why? Why anything? For meaning that's anchored in the character of God, that has to be anchored for us as believers in His intentions toward us, in His steadfast love, even when we are anything but steadfast and anything but loving. We depend on Him. A few years back, I was a guest speaker at, um, to, a, to a group of Furman students, and the discussion topic was social justice and the church. And the question that I put to the students was this, why do we really care about justice or law? And is there a stable why apart from a belief in God? Is there a reason? Is there meaning in that? Or more generally, is there an ethic that's bigger than and beyond us and our sorting it out? And so to explore this, I had them read Paul's 25-verse letter to Philemon to consider the apostles' very painstaking work here to reconcile Philemon and his runaway slave, Onesimus, to reconcile them as brothers in Christ. But there's a lot under this, and, and you know, their, their first-century economic system which depended on indentured servanthood. This was more of a class system than anything. And if you were destitute but you were able-bodied, you survived as a servant in the household of a wealthy person. And that was the least dramatic expression of this arrangement. You were the embodiment of a walking debt, right? You were a dependent underclass. You were only a function like a washing machine or maybe like a box truck. And it wasn't the inhumanity of, of what we've seen you know, in racist, chattel slavery, as we call it, in America's history, the history of the West, but it was still impersonal. It was still inhumane and very often abusive. And so in his letter to Philemon, Paul argued that something greater 
then this system they're living in, something greater uh, than the system, fundamentally define their relationship. He says to Philemon, I am sending Onesimus back to you no longer as a bondservant, but as more, as both a beloved brother, uh, both in the flesh and in the Lord. That's interesting. In the flesh and in the Lord. In other words, Paul not only saw their bond as this new spiritual reality that's established by their common faith in the risen and exalted Christ, which is fundamental and beautiful and lasting, but he also saw them as brothers in their common humanity, in the flesh. Have you seen that before in this? Something that was always true and needed recovering and is being recovered in the risen Christ. Beneath that basis was Paul's why. It was this understanding that each brother and sister in the flesh is created and willed by the one true God. That's where our natural commonality, that's where our essential equality lie in the eyes of God, in His creative and in His redeeming love. This is why. So how did the students answer the question? And most said, we definitely need a higher ethic. We definitely need something beyond us. But some said, no, God isn't necessary in this thing, not as a basis for justice or for law or for working this out together, to which I asked, okay, then why? What is the basis? And for the most part, their answer was practical, idealistic, understandably, sentimental, understandably. And it went something like this. If we all can just agree that people are equal, all boats can rise with the same tide. Why wouldn't we want that? Why indeed? Why wouldn't we want that? And practically speaking, this, this inclusive approach, you know, it imagines, in, understandably, and, and has warrant that atheists and people of other beliefs can hold our same values and aspirations and that we can work together in the world. We can pursue the same ends for a better world, even without the need for a belief in a God or a transcendent ethic. But of course, the problem with this approach, maybe it's obvious to you, is that people would need to agree at a very deep and broad level that there actually is this one common and best understanding of justice and the kinds of laws that we need, regardless of our differences, that we can agree on common laws that will work to govern everything and govern everyone. In legal terms, and I know no shortage of lawyers in here, so you know, we can talk about this later. But in legal terms, we call this positivism. A system that works without anything above it or beyond the system itself. And the thing is, it's relative to other systems. So ideally, it's the best among all possible systems. It's positivism. But it's not relative to any higher standard. Okay? So imagine that each person in here has a 12-inch ruler. And... You know, I know there's a ruler on your phone, not the same thing. Imagine you have a 12-inch ruler, but there's one 12-inch ruler in a glass case in Washington, D.C. Or, as citizens of this state, we have one in Columbia, against which all our other rulers are measured. Imagine that, okay? And you can hold your ruler up to it, to that glass case ruler, to make sure it's the same, that all the inches, right, and the, and the eighths and the sixteenths are right. But you can't ask this question. What's the ruler in the glass case based on? 
That's positivism. Like, no, we don't ask that question. It's the one ruler to rule them all, to ruler them all. That's positivism, right? We all just have to agree that the system that we make and that we have and improve, ideally, is the best system. It's the system we need. Let's just all agree on that. Nothing needed above there. But as you might imagine, this isn't the system we've always had. Before that, anybody know what system basically, do we have any lawyers that want to Naturalism, we would call it. Natural law. That persisted for like 15 centuries, but it actually originated with Aristotle. You didn't know you were going to get a, a history and philosophy of law lesson, but I think it's helpful for us to think about where we're situated, right? Naturalism was the prevailing legal system in the West for 15 centuries, and it, like I said, it began in Aristotle's mind. It really got ratified, you know, in, uh, by Thomas Aquinas, baptized, you know, by medieval theo- theologians and the influence of the church at the time, but Naturalism, can, it sounds like this familiar refrain. You'll understand it. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Why are they self-evident? Because, says naturalism, it's in us all. It's inherent in all of us. It's the same ethic. We just got to figure out how to, make, to, to bring it together. There's this understanding of human value. The best people value it. Maybe the worst people don't. But it's there. There's a morality. We just got to, it's there. And in the case of America, right, we said that this is true because all people have a common origin in a divine creator. That's what we've said. So, you might put it this way, naturalism assumes that people know what's right deep down. They just got to get it together. We got to get it together. It's the Jiminy Cricket approach. Pinocchio, right? Jiminy Cricket, what was his little song? Anybody want to sing it? Always let your conscience be your guide. We all have a conscience. Let it be your guide. We'll all sort of work together. The problem is, Our consciences are very conditioned, aren't they? They're culturally conditioned. They have to do with our experience. They have to do, right, often with our environment. That's how we actually got the devastating ideologies of the 20th century, whole nations and people groups that could believe something so horrific. That's how we get the ideologies we have right now that don't work and they're not going to work. and They're painful. The truth is people feel deep down that they are right. Can we always let our conscience be our guide? Should we listen to a cricket? Probably not. So consider this, you know, in light of this. The metal gates that are leading into the Buchenwald death camp just outside Weimar, Germany, they read, Jedem das Sein. Each gets what he deserves. Do you know where that came from? It's a, it's a little bit of an edit on the Justinian Code of the 6th century that says to live honestly, to harm no one, and to make sure each one gets what he deserves. Well, who gets to decide what each one gets and what they deserve? This is the question. It's scary, right? And while we're at it, let's just take it one little step further beyond positivism and naturalism. Let's take it to the universal rule. This is a great idea, sort of. It comes from Immanuel Kant. And there were some political theorists, theorists, some of you know this stuff. John Rawls advanced this idea that there could be this universal ethic. And it, 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 it's similar to, um, to positivism, but that if we just began with the idea, you and I just said, we can find something that will work for everyone. And we start working for it, and working toward it, then we'll come up with it. 
If that's our shared goal, like if we believe in that principle, then that's what we're going to work toward and that's what we'll find, especially if we keep future generations in mind. In other words, it's like if we really want the best, then the best will come. We can achieve it, God or no God. Nice idea, but it falls flat on many levels, not least of which is when you're looking in the face of someone like Genghis Khan or in the face of somebody else who wants power, like Adolf Hitler, or anybody who wants power over other people, because they're not concerned with principles, concerned with power, and there are always those people, right? So let's come full circle. My point to these students was, if the answer to the question why is simply some form of, well, because, then we have a real problem. And that's a lot of how we're answering the question of why we should be seeking the ultimate good, the common good. Well, because we should all know. Or this is what's right. This is what's good. Well, because we all have a conscience, and if we'll just listen to it, things will be better. Because if we don't agree on why, it's nearly impossible to come up with any sustainable or trustworthy what. So let's just look at Psalm 33 together. Because I think it orients us if we profess faith in God and we believe that the world has meaning and we're looking for something beyond us, because I'll tell you, I'm looking for something beyond me. It echoes like an undiminished, I mean, it just, it's undiminished and echoes with the whole story of Scripture. This psalm does. It leaves nothing left to guess about the why. The where from, and thus the what of how to live in the world that's broken, that's in need of justice as it is. It gives us how to make sense of things, how to hope. So let's just look at it. In verses 8 and 9, the psalmist calls for a deep respect for and all in the God who spoke the world and people into existence. And the good news, you got it in the Jeremiah prophecy today, that reading today, that this is something the Lord was going to help us with, to fear Him. I will put this fear in my people. This regard, this awe. So the God who made the earth firm has provided meaning. Without that, what can we expect? A reason, why? What can we expect? What can we hope for? Can we actually hope for a stable, anchored world with dependable systems of law and government without something beyond someone beyond you and me? And the question I want to ask as we move forward is, do we live as though we have something like that, someone on whom we can depend? And what does it look like in the lives we live? So, what we end up getting, he talks about, you know, the councils of the nations that honestly end up eating themselves. They come to nothing in the words of the psalmist. Competing priorities that are anchored loosely in the whims, the compulsions, the innovations, the latest things, the power plays of the next empire to rise and fall. Why do they fall? Lots of granular reasons, but at the very least, they fall because they act as though there is nothing bigger than them or the people who advance them. The day and age that we live in, you could call it presentism, some people call it. Nothing bigger than us, nothing better, nothing smarter. Nothing bigger or more meaningful than our success, which plagued Israel, which plagues us, plagued the church in, the, in its marriage to Western power. We've done it. We've not shown the world what it means to trust in a sovereign God. 
We've been clamoring for power very often. Nothing bigger than fragile agreements that depend on the kind of integrity and consistency of which none of us are fully capable all the time. There is often nothing beyond our own interests and our own desires, our desired outcomes driving us, if we're honest. More often than not, the systems we make just look like the hearts we have. And what we get in this call to the fear of the Lord, the work of the Holy Spirit in us, and our reflection on the cross, what we get is a call to look at our hearts. To you all, hearts are open. We call that the scary prayer. All desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. We're practicing all when we come in. We're practicing the fear of the Lord together. We can't hide anything. The systems we make look like the hearts we have. We want what we believe is good, and we struggle to interrogate, to really ask the question of whether or not it actually is good. We don't want to question our own desires. Is what we want really good, though? And How can we know? And I recently heard someone list and explain the common biases that tend to affect us all. You know, um, you might not have any biases. I definitely have biases. And if you think you don't have biases, it's because of your biases. So <laughs> they listed this. We have the primacy effect bias. These are fun. You don't have to remember these, but they're not fun, actually. They lead us, the primacy effect bias leads us to cling to our own initial ideas. Why do we cling to them? Because they're our own. They're familiar to us, and they came from us, and we like them. Then we have the confirmation bias, which a lot of people have been talking about lately, is that it leads us to seek out and to accept only the information that already backs up and that fits our existing views. So we just double down on the promisey thing, right? We find the people who think like us and all of that. And we have a false consensus effect bias. That one's going to be harder to remember, right? False consensus effect bias in which we tend to overestimate the number of people who agree with what we already think and like. And we've already confirmed through all the other people we've been listening to. We overestimate the number of people who agree with us and we underestimate the number of people who disagree with us. And that's how we end up very often with that group versus this group, me versus them, us versus those, right? Often it's how we end up defining Dignity, humanity, the right to simply be ourselves is kind of what we operate in, defined by ourselves, and the subjectivity of which is anything but stable. And I just read uh, an article, this example, an interesting example, an article in the New York Times about a Japanese man who married a fictional character from an animated series. Do you know why he married her? And he's, this is an otherwise really functional you know, guy. Married a fictional character from an animated series saying she's always there for him. She'll never betray him. And he'll never have to get to see her ill or die. He can even log in to interact with her AI on a program that's designed for what's now being called fictosexuals. A growing number of whom are emerging in Japan and in America. And our response to this way of our, our own selves and our own realities beginning to shape in very functional ways, you know, our own lives and even our culture, our response shouldn't be ridicule, but it should be lament that those, don't, that, that, that those around us, they don't know the type of world that the Lord wants, the type of redemption and healing that He is moving us toward, the type of trust and hope that's available. We should have lament for the world we're making.
though the council of the nations who bungle things beyond repair, they come to nothing. And our half-baked plans result in the kinds of chaos and incoherence that we see in our world today. There is another council. That's what this declares. There are other plans. That's great news here in Psalm 33. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. And the plans of His heart to all generations. And again, you hear it in the refrain of Jeremiah, our reading today too. The plans of his heart to all generations. The counsel that lasts, the plans that are ultimately fulfilled, these are anchored in the heart, in the character, in the love of God, in what he desires. Not in what just we desire. In short, we can't, I I think what this is telling us, and, and the promise again that comes through in Jeremiah, we can't and won't ultimately wreck it. And they, whoever your they happens to be, they can't wreck it either. The counsel of the Lord stands forever in the plans of his heart to all generations. When we read verse 12 about a nation whose God is the Lord, we do well to resist narrowing the scope of this. That this could be reduced to America or any other so-called godly nation, although ideally every nation would, would, would hold the ideals of, of, of Scripture and of our you know, of our essential dignity in our createdness. But we do well not to reduce it to America, any so-called godly nation that's focused, in the end, primarily on its own interests. This blessed nation that he's talking about here, whose God is the Lord, is far bigger and better. And it's a people initially gathered in God's covenant in faith. But even God's, God's covenant to Abraham in faith and through Israel was for the whole world. We know this. And it was fulfilled in the new covenant in Christ's blood. And so we get this reading today in Revelation, this holy nation that the Lord has chosen and ransomed from every tribe, every language, and people, and nation, and made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And that's how it lasts as God works in and through us, not because of completely dependent on our character, steadfastness but on his this is how it transcends this is how it anchors in a throne that's greater than dc or london or moscow or beijing or brussels right how it continues to hold out hope to the world when the nations rage and when they come to nothing as america just might do but according to verse 12 god has chosen this holy nation as his heritage in the world it will go on His choice, his plans, his self-giving in service of the choice that he has made. And those plans, they cannot be ultimately frustrated. I don't know if that lands on you like good news, but I need to know that. I suppose the question is just this. Is that the nation to which we really belong and for which we do long? The good news continues from verse 13. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. It's great news. God looks. God sees. Objectively. And where he sits, he isn't shaking like the ground beneath us seems to be. He's not anxious. He's not distracted, nor entertaining himself to death. He's not anesthetizing because things are so hard. He's not oversimplifying while the world shakes. He sees the children of man, and he's fashioning our hearts. 
teaching us what to love. And this means he's still at work through his people in the world, believe it or not. He sees what we do and what it comes to. But he's still on watch. He's still at work. He's still preserving and redeeming. He's still giving us his spirit and his counsel. So while, as in verses 16 and 17, look at them, the kings and power brokers trust their armies, or we might even say they trust the almighty dollar for rescue, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death. Right here, the power of the risen Christ, the power of the risen Christ over our ultimate enemy, death, is on display. The Psalms are very prophetic at times, and this is what we're seeing. And so the question necessarily arises for us. Let's think about it. What, is, what, what do we become in the world as Christians when we no longer fear death, loss, or scarcity? How do we live in the world? This is the vision of God for a people for whom He's overcome death. We become what? A non-anxious a non-combative presence able to entrust the world to God because he said, I'm at work in it, in hearts. We become hopeful people trusting not in our own capacities but in the steadfast love of God to help us make it work. What are those around us who are desperately chasing empty forms of peace, fulfillment, and love, uh, desperately, you know, looking for the the way to live in a world of inflation and recession and even famine, what do they see in us when this news is perpetual? Hopefully they see something different. They see trust in what's trustworthy. And here's where I think this whole psalm really moves deep, should move deeply into our hearts. It turns on this. They see what trust, real trust, produces despite all the odds. What does it produce in here? Verse 21, gladness of heart. I don't know about you, but it's pretty difficult to be glad right now. Like glad, like just infectiously glad. And I, I prayed, you know, you know, in reading this psalm earlier, I'm so glad it came around, but in reading this psalm earlier in the year, I just prayed, Lord, help me to be more glad. A lot of the problems in my heart and mind and around me have come from a lack of gladness, and gladness comes from a lack of trust, is what this psalm is saying. The subject in these concluding verses, it shifts from the Lord to us, says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in Him because we trust in His holy name. Or do we? And I think trust enables us to wait with expectation and not anxiety. It enables us to rejoice and be glad even in a world gone wrong, in a workplace gone wrong, in a relationship gone wrong. We need to see the indelible connection between trust and gladness. And I can tell you this right now, whatever the forces are at work in our world, they're attempting to erode our trust in anything and everything. I'd argue that your ability to be glad is directly tied to the trust you feel in every sphere. I would also argue that anxiety in our world is a direct result of just how untethered and transient we are and are becoming. How little we can trust in, hard as we try. So the goal of our gladness is actually to connect ourselves to whom and to what is trustworthy. We're looking for solid ground. And the call in our lives is to give this to others. We've found it. 
It's true that people are going to let us down. They are. They've let you down. Full stop. People are going to. Leaders are going to. Churches are going to. Your boss is going to. Spouses are, governments, family, the best of things and the worst of things are still things. They're contingent, dependent, flawed, but God and his love are not contingent. This is what this psalm wants to to churn in our hearts. His love is steadfast, and I believe this is what allows us, the church, by design to live in the world as it really is. It's broken, and it's beautiful. It allows us to acknowledge that brokenness and not fake it, not whitewash it, but it also allows us to seek and to see the beauty that's here. And so we get this prayer at the end of it. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. That's aspirational. That's dynamic. Let it be. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Our hope is so dependent on our sense of God's love. And how do we know he loves us? How can we find our why? It should be obvious to us, but it's not. It's why we have to remember every Sunday and really every day at the center of human history is a cross. It is the symbol of the ultimate love of a God who came down to suffer with us and for us. And history moves forward only because his suffering, because his cross didn't have the final word. Love did. That's how we know he loves us. Archimedes, who was the Greek, a Greek mathematician and philosopher, he once said this. He said, give me a lever, you know, lever, long enough and a fulcrum outside the world, and I can move the world. Do you know what the lever is? It's the cross of Christ. And you know the fulcrum that will not be moved and that is strong enough to carry any weight is the steadfast love of God for a world that he made and he will not give up on. And he won't give up on you. Every word and every hope within this psalm is fulfilled in the death, death and resurrection of Jesus. Every hope for stability, and we all have it, and every hope for salvation, every why that's necessary for any lasting what in our world is given in the love of God who does look down from heaven, who does see all the children of man, and who was slain. And by his blood he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And he has and will make them a kingdom and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth that he is renewing, no matter what it looks or feels like right now. So this is just about trust. This is about where we put our trust. This is where we find the deep gladness for which we were made and from which we hold out hope to our confused and our anxious neighbors who are anything but glad. And are we? And do we still believe this? Lord, as you promised to continue to work in us your love and even the great fear of you that draws us in awe of you and helps us to trust you. You promised to work this in our hearts. So help us to believe whenever we're struggling to trust, whenever the ground is shaky, whenever the arguments are at fever pitch, help us to trust. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.